0: So, thank you, Martin. Keep that open. We'll look at that tonight together. Let's pray as we do so. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for your word you've given us, which speaks faithfully to us, and we pray that you will help us to listen and hear and respond as you will, tonight and always. Amen. have you ever had the experience of being unfairly accused of something? I always think this is a much harder thing than being accused of something that I have done. Because if I've done something, I can confess it and then maybe make it good in some way. But when it's an unfair accusation, what can you do? All you can say is, as we do, don't we, it's not fair. But there's often no way of proving that. Uh, And earlier this year, for instance, you might have seen in the news, Cliff Richard has been through a trial, hasn't he, over accusations made from some years back. Uh, from which, in the end, recently, he was vindicated, declared not guilty. But only after, I imagine, a huge amount of stress for him and his family. And This psalm is about that question of what happens when life is not fair. And you can sense in the reading the, the anxiety that David, the writer, is feeling as he is unfairly accused of something. Now, these psalms, you probably saw the heading uh, a shiga, whatever a shigaan is, of David. Uh, it's probably kind of a musical style. Which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush Benjamite. These headings that some psalms have uh, were probably not in the original psalm when it was first written, but sometimes, like this time, I think, they're quite helpful as context, as pointers to what's happening in the background that made David write this psalm. And it might be important here because the tribe of Benjamin is significant in David's life. You might know the story. It was the tribe of Saul who saw David, King Saul, who saw David as a threat to his own kingship. So there was a rivalry between these two tribes, even though, uh, to start with at least, they were friendly to each other. They were allies, really. We don't know any more about this guy called Cush, and he's mentioned here. It's quite likely, though, from the psalm that he has accused David of something, probably treachery against the house of Benjamin, against Saul and his family, plotting against him when the two families were meant to be allies. And so this psalm is probably set in the context of David wondering, will God step in to say, no, David has done nothing wrong. This is an unfair accusation. So here's this psalm, this context of, of, of our experience of when life doesn't seem fair. It breaks really into two main sections. There's verses 1 to 10, which I've called tonight, as we'll see, Rescue for the Righteous, with a question mark. Does God rescue the righteous? and then the second section warnings quite a change of tone warnings for the wicked Uh, that's 11 to 16 and then verse 17 really as you saw as we read it uh, is a conclusion a kind of praise that ends the the psalm with that lovely positive note so first of the sections then 1 to 11 rescue for the righteous so that psalm starts verse 1 Now, david's desperate did you you get that sense verse 1 O oh Lord, do not do not allow me to be destroyed. Let me take refuge in you. Save me, deliver me, because I'm being pursued. You get the kind of sense of the anxiety, the stress he's under here. Very vivid image, a messy picture. He says, deliver me, verse three, uh, sorry, verse two, or they will tear me like a lion and rip me to pieces. It's gory, isn't it? And there's no one, it seems, That he expects to be able to rescue him from Cush's accusations that have put him in in some way on trial or in major trouble. He's quite, secondly, defensive, uh, quite personal language uses. He says, I take refuge in you. Save me, deliver me from all who pursue me. He really sort of feels right at the centre of this turmoil of accusations against him. He's saying, isn't he, Lord, unless you rescue me, who is righteous, who's done nothing wrong, I am going to come to a messy, sticky end here. I need you to step in. And so he does that. Um, he turns to the Lord and, and asks him to intervene to help and rescue him. And uh, the the next little section of verses 3 to 5, he's really quite, I've called it, defiant here. He moves on to state his case, to say, you know, I am innocent here, and if I'm not innocent, then I'm quite happy to die for what I'm alleged to have done. He'll willingly die at Cush's hands if he has done wrong in this case. Uh, So see the ifs there. If I've done wrong, um, I think it's implied, but if there is guilt on my hands... Of course it's an if that he believes it is not an if it's not true if I've repaid my ally um, he probably does mean there Saul and his family Cush and Co if I've done evil to him who's at peace with me or if I have without cause robbed my foe see that the sense they're saying none of these things are true but if they were true i would be quite happy to be torn to shreds, to be trampled on by my enemies and put to death by them. So he's quite defiant, isn't he? He's saying, I am not innocent. I, I'm innocent here, but if I'm not, then I'm happy to die for it. There's one daily newspaper a few years ago that carried a story about the problems faced sometimes by people who are unfairly accused of committing potentially serious offences, including, for instance, some sexual offences. And the writer recognised it's a highly sensitive area, especially at the moment in our culture, um, and and rightly said um, that it's vital that such offences are prosecuted when they've happened. Um, But he also just picked up and interviewed a, a small number of cases where an innocent person had been targeted by someone for perhaps vindictive, malicious reasons. And those accused said they felt that they were assumed guilty unless, or even once, proven innocent. There was one 17-year-old called Jay Chesser who was acquitted after allegations were made by someone and then withdrawn only a couple of weeks later And so he was then acquitted, but because of the stress caused by the accusations, he still took his own life, sadly, shortly after that. And here's David accused of a a different kind of crime, of treachery against an allied family for something he didn't commit. And he's defiant, he says, I I didn't do this. And then he demands his day in court in verse 6. Arise, Lord, in your anger, Awake, decree justice. Command justice. And you can see why, can't you, why he's demanding this. If God does not clear his name, he's in trouble, isn't he? He's got no one else who can do it for him. It seems no one's going to speak up for him from his friends and family. He's on his own unless God intervenes and took his justice. Uh, and he commands justice, um, he, he says effectively, set a day for a trial. Uh, in fact, he widens it, doesn't he? You see that verse 7 He doesn't just ask justice for himself here. He wants God to gather all the peoples. Um, So perhaps as witnesses, but perhaps also, he wants the whole world to be judged. He wants God to put everything right, all of the injustices, all of the unfair situations that human beings have created. Let the assembled peoples gather, verse 7, around you while you sit enthroned over them. And above all, he wants to be declared innocent. He wants his name cleared. Verse 8, vindicate me or or judge me. Vindicate is perhaps a better word there. Um, Declare me innocent, what he's saying, according to my righteousness because I'm righteous and according to my integrity because I'm not lying here. Now as Christians I think we sometimes feel a little uncomfortable with this this psalms when they use this sort of language. um, My righteousness. Recognize or here, judge me according to my righteousness. We're so used to being taught from the Bible, quite rightly, that none of us are righteous, not even one, except Jesus Christ, that we're sinners. So C.S. Lewis, writing on this psalm, thinks that David here has lost his humility. He's kind of lost the plot, really, um, theologically. And he's being self-righteous. He's claiming a righteousness that he shouldn't be claiming. He says he's falling into a fatal confusion between being in the right, which he might be here, and being righteous, which he's not. Now, I think unusually, Lewis is probably uh, misleading us there. David is not, I don't think, claiming to be perfect in every way by saying, vindicate me in my righteousness. He's simply saying, in this particular legal case, in this accusation of treachery, that Cush is making against me, I'm righteous, I haven't done it. Does that make sense? And I think that helps us not to feel that this verse is is, is kind of foreign to us, because we can never say we're righteous. And David certainly could never have said he was completely righteous, he wasn't. So here he's claiming that in this case he's innocent. And so he turns to ask God in verse 9, not just to acquit him, but to pass sentence on those who accuse him wrongly. Because they are the ones, aren't they, if he's right, who are committing evil here by trumping up charges, by accusing him. Bring to an end, verse 9, the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. Two things, make me secure, bring wicked people to an end. Now, if I were ever to go to court, and this is obviously purely hypothetical, at least so far, um, if I were called to, to defend myself, I'm sure I, I would try and call people to be like character references for me, to speak on my behalf about how I'm you know, responsible and, and respectable and, and so on. David has a better plan than that here, doesn't he? You notice this. Who does he call on, as it were, to be his witness, his character reference here? He calls for God himself. He talks in verse um, 9 about the righteous God who probes hearts and minds. He says, vindicate me, acquit me, clear my name. Why? How? Well, because you are the God that sees my heart. You know everything I've done. You know I haven't done this. Isn't that great? He calls God as his character reference, because God sees the heart. I'm always amazed by the ability of things like these satellites and drones to, with, with very high-powered cameras um, to, to drill down and see incredible detail. They, apparently they can recognize even like the face of a person you know, walking outside during the daytime from some of these satellites. Isn't that amazing, the level of detail? And David's saying here isn't he, that God doesn't just see the surface of us in every detail, he sees inside as well. He knows when I've been righteous or unrighteous. God will right wrongs one day. That's what David is really asking for and claiming here. God will right wrongs, that he will be secure and the wicked will come to an end. There is a rescue coming for the righteous, to answer our original question. Does God rescue the righteous? He does, he will. And so that is, as I've put there, that is good news, first of all, for us. It does mean the world is not spiraling to chaos and nothing will ever be done to put wrongs right. Wickedness will meet its end and righteousness will one day meet its reward. That is good news. Justice is coming. As Paul says in Acts 17, God has appointed a day, he's decreed justice when he will judge the world with justice through Jesus Christ that he raised from the dead. But it's also bad news for us that God is righteous, isn't it? Because none of us, as we said earlier, is completely righteous. If God is a God that sees all my uh, heart, thoughts and actions and will rightly judge everything that's been wicked and evil, then I'm in trouble. We're all in trouble if we're left to our own devices, None of us is wholly righteous. God, as Hebrews says, sees the secrets of our hearts. And I'm very conscious, thinking of David's false accusations against him here. I am as capable of making false accusations against someone else as I am, perhaps more capable, as I am of being falsely accused by someone else. I'm as good at doing a Cush to someone as at being a David. That's bad news. My entire life, I need to confess, don't I? Day by day. My life needs to be one of constant repentance because it's unrighteous. And my life needs actually not His justice, first of all, but His mercy. So there's good news and bad news, isn't there, in this message that God is absolutely righteous? God does put things right. But I want to suggest that there's actually another, an even richer way of hearing this psalm, applying this psalm to ourselves today. Because I think this psalm points, of course, to David that wrote it, but actually especially to Christ, to Jesus, God's righteous king. We've seen in each of these psalms so far how, um, in, in one sense, they're prayed by David. In one sense, we can pray them today. But in another sense, they're prayed by Jesus. In a sense, they're his songbook. And I think that's very true of this Psalm 7. You see, think of this. Jesus was put on trial not because he had betrayed his friends, like David had been accused, but because they had betrayed him. And although he was innocent, as David says he was in this case, Jesus was unfairly accused by Judas, by the Jewish leadership, of treachery against his own people. And then he was condemned to torture and crucifixion. And then he was raised. He was vindicated. Raised by God, his Father. So Jesus, I think, could pray, verse 1, entirely from his heart. Lord, my God, I take refuge in you as he went towards his trial and crucifixion. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me. And he had more enemies uh, spiritually than any of us will ever have. He could pray, verse 4, if, I, if I've repaid my ally with evil, then let him trample my life to the ground. He could pray that, couldn't he? Because he'd never done wrong. He was innocent. And in his death, even, you might remember in the gospel stories, if you know them, there was a thief and there was a Roman centurion who both recognized him as the king sent from God who was suffering unjustly on the cross. I've put some references, if you're taking notes, I'm on the screen there to just follow that up with from Mark and from Luke's Gospel. They saw that this was God's righteous king suffering for something he'd not done, just like David did in this one case in Psalm 7. And Peter tells of the faith Jesus showed when he was unfairly accused. He says in 1 Peter, he entrusted, Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges Justly. He entrusted himself to the righteous judgment of God. So this psalm, yes, it's good news that God is righteous. It's also bad news that God is righteous. But, above all, it makes us, it makes you and me, I think it should do, want to wonder at Jesus afresh. For how faithfully, courageously, humbly, he went through the experience of being unfairly accused as an innocent son of God and even went to death unfairly and then was raised gloriously in righteousness to life for us. So here he is, going back to Psalm 7. David's faced with unjust accusation. He takes his case to God and says, come on, clear my name. And I think the rest of the psalm, if you get the sense of this, it shows that he realises his case, his plea, is being answered by God. God is helping him. God is vindicating him. Um, So I've called the second section, Warnings for the Wicked. Rescue for the righteous, warnings for the wicked. And there are really two warnings uh, here. One is about God, and one, as we'll see, is about wicked people. Um, The warning about God comes there in verses 10 to 13. God is a righteous judge who displays his wrath every day. God is a righteous judge who displays his wrath every day, verse 11. See how David's changed now. He's not pleading to be rescued anymore. He's now kind of addressing himself, isn't he, to wicked people saying, uh, there's a righteous, a righteous judge up there. We all need to wake up and be ready for him, for when we meet him. Uh, so God is a righteous judge. It's not very trendy in churches nowadays to talk about God as judge at all. Though the Bible does. um, Or about God being angry with sin, with evil, with wickedness. But the Bible does. The Bible consistently speaks in these ways. And if you think about it, the alternative to a God who is judge is surely a lot worse. Who wants a God who is indifferent to treachery? or to lies, or to violence against the innocent. So here is God, David says, a righteous judge, preparing to judge all people, all wickedness, with absolute destruction. Because, secondly, righteous judge, but also a terrifying enemy. You saw the picture of God really as a warrior, isn't he, in verses 12 and 13, he will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. He's prepared his deadly weapons. He makes ready his flaming arrows. It's a pretty terrifying picture, isn't it? If you are um, defenceless, you're approaching. You see your enemy coming towards you, and you can see he's bigger than you because he's God in this case. And as he as he approaches, you see he's sharpening his sword. Um, ready for you presumably he's bending his mighty bow and he's resting the sharp arrow on the string and he's lighting the flames at the end of the arrow to release it when the moment comes if you see that it's going to make you pause to think isn't it at the very least it's going to terrify you it's going to make you plead for mercy That's because God is a righteous judge and also a terrifying enemy. The Puritan writer Thomas Watson said it this way. He said, God is the sweetest friend. And we've seen that, haven't we, already in this psalm? And, he says, the worst enemy. Sweetest friend, but worst enemy. And here's this picture of God. It's an extraordinary picture. God's ready to judge. He's, he's got the, the, the bow all loaded, the string pulled, the arrow ready. But he doesn't judge it, does he? He's ready, says David. He's prepared. And it's almost like he's waiting for the time, either that we should repent, so he needn't judge us, or that we act again in evil, so that when he judges us, it's clear. He's judging us justly for the wicked we've committed. So here is God, righteous judge, terrifying enemy. And the second picture, the second warning is, if that's the warning about God, is about people, about the wicked. And he talks about the wicked, David, in verses 14 and 16, with these these three images. It, It describes what the wicked people are like and what the consequences are for wicked people, of their actions. So verse 14, whoever's pregnant with evil conceives trouble and deceit. Evil's conceived, he's saying, inside, in the heart. It doesn't just spring out from nowhere. Every slander, every lie that Cush is telling against David has been gestating inside Cush's heart for some time. Like a child um, gestating in its mother's womb. Extraordinary picture again, isn't it? And verse 15, whoever digs a hole and scrapes it out falls into the pit they've made. In other words, evil is a suicidal death trap. Don't go there, David is saying. It's folly, it's stupid, it's dangerous. The evil Cush is plotting by telling lies about David is just one day going to be the thing that comes down on his own head and is the end of Cush himself. He's standing on a kind of slippery edge of the pit he's made. He's made. And then verse 16, the trouble that the wicked people cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. It's a lethal boomerang, isn't it? An evil action, an evil thought or word. The wickedness we do literally bounces back and hurts us. It's rather like in those old Tom and Jerry cartoons. You might remember those where the evil cat Tom tries to catch the mouse Jerry by doing things like placing a lit stick of dynamite into the little hole in the skirting board where Jerry lives, not realising that Jerry's already been round behind him and has tied the other end of the stick to his tail. Evil recoils, it, bounces back on the one that perpetrates it. It could be David's just saying that you know, in life, that's what happens. If you do bad things in the end, they'll come back on you that certainly is the way life often works could be david also meaning the judgment that god is waiting to deliver one day when christ returns when the whole world is judged it could be it's, it's simply both the medieval writer dante wrote a, f- a famous book called the inferno in which he pictures hell as a series of, of nine concentric circles um, and in the out, outer one, the ninth, the, the first circle are the, as it were, the kind of less serious sins and the less serious punishments, and, and each circle going further in, more serious sins and more serious punishments. And he's taken by a guide through these nine circles, one by one, starting on the outside and working into the ninth in the middle. And reaching that final ninth circle, Dante finds there all of those who've deceived others. By either theft or slander or telling lies. So, including, he finds people there like Potiphar's wife, you might know in the book of Genesis, who falsely accuses Joseph of seducing her. And there's a guy called Janny there, who in legend tricked his family out of their inheritance by pretending to be his dead relative, Boso Donati. And again, in, in this central circle of hell these people that deceived and told lies of others are now there in hell slandering and accusing each other still Dante's story it's just a long and very elegant way of making the point that this psalm is making the double point really firstly God is a righteous judge and he vindicates the righteous starting with his son King Jesus, raising him from the dead to start with. God is a righteous judge. He vindicates the righteous. But also, yes, evil actions do indeed rebound in judgment on those who commit them. So, this psalm, if we're reading it and listening to it tonight, it makes us want to be warned, doesn't it? It makes me want to warn you and myself tonight with urgency of the call to repent not to pretend that somehow I'm good enough, uh, I'll be righteous enough, I hope for God one day, but simply to come clean and say, Lord, forgive me my sins. For I'm not righteous. Lead me not into temptation, as Jesus teaches us to pray. Deliver me from evil. I need Christ. I need his forgiveness. I need his help. So is that that real warning. If that's you tonight, please hear that warning. If you've been drifting, if you recognise that in your heart, you haven't been in a, in a heart of repentance towards God. Somehow, if you've, you've grown over self-confident, please turn back tonight and come clean before him. But it also makes me want to pray, doesn't it, for um, those around us that don't yet know Christ themselves. Maybe you here tonight. It's, it's a tremendous joy to heaven and to us when a single sinner repents and comes home. So, why don't you and I pray urgently for the people that we're praying for, perhaps, that God will open their eyes to their need, yes, of justice, but first of all, of his mercy in Christ? That our hope in eternity may, you know, people need to hear this. Uh, it rests, doesn't it, I hope, not in the good we've done. It's how we all think by nature. It rests in the righteousness and the mercy of Christ. That's the good news. That's what rescues. And if it helps, why not pick up from us tonight or take to give to them a gospel so they can read about Jesus, King Jesus, the righteous one, who's been uh, suffered for us and has been declared righteous in his resurrection. So this psalm, just to wrap it up now, it starts, doesn't it, in a, in a kind of mode of panic almost, but it ends in praise, at verse 17. Jesus has perfectly fulfilled God's righteousness. David's pattern of calling out for rescue and warning the wicked before it's too late. So let's make verse 17 our verse this week. Now, when one of us maybe sins and needs to repent, let's remember that Jesus did indeed die, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us back to God, and he rose again. Let's, at that moment, say, I will give thanks to the Lord for his righteousness. Or when maybe a student or uh, at work this week, someone faces false accusations. that It's not fair feeling. Let's remember that Jesus innocently suffered even more than we ever can. And yet... He died and God raised him. I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. And when any of us longs for wrongs to be put right in this world, for the wicked to meet justice, and don't we all wish that when we see extreme evil, let's remember in that moment that one day God's justice will come to all, to every human being. And let's say in that moment, I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. So let me lead us in a short prayer now. Uh, And then I thought, if we just leave that verse on the screen there, I'll end the prayer by saying, "Let's, let's say together, and we'll say that phrase from verse 17 one more time together. So just be ready for the moment in a second. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you gave Jesus Christ the righteous one for us. Help us to come to you in honesty as those that need your forgiveness but in ourselves are not always righteous. Give us mercy, we pray. But as we cry for justice in our own lives and in this world, we thank you that a day is coming and that you are a God of justice, of righteousness. And in Christ, may we show that righteousness to the world and may we see that righteousness come one day and long for it. And so let's say together from verse 70 one more time. I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. Amen.